I'd like to introduce you to two women who have showed up for people who have been deemed unworthy of our care and redemption. Those people are drug users. Thelma and Louise are two dynamic women working in drug harm reduction in North Carolina. Much like the fictional Thelma and Louise, they are two friends that have become partners in setting things right by helping users through proper drug intervention techniques and their own methods of fundraising through an underground treatment network. We begin with Louise describing her upbringing. I'd had a pretty privileged and a pretty, um, my parents were middle class professors, that whole spiel. Normal childhood. Well, I, I don't know if I'd say normal, but okay. I, you know, I, you know, I struggled with substance use from the time I was 13 on and mental health issues and all that. So it, it got real abnormal. But from what my, my parents tried everything, they, you know, they, my parents tried all the things they could and, and, and whatnot. Um, I, was, I was naive in that I was, didn't watch a lot of TV. Uh, my, my mom was a history professor. She believed very much that things were, systems worked, you know, the police were good. All these things, so that everything was, if, she believed in the system. And so I was taught that the system was, and I had two biracial children, so I was beginning to learn that the system wasn't, you know, I, I had crashed up against a few things. I think my biggest piece of learning was my husband died when, uh, when my husband died when he was 28 and my daughter was two, and my mom had cancer at the same time he did and they were going to the same oncologist, and they wouldn't give him any Percocet or any pain medicine. You know, I was watching him treat my mom real good. I, I was watching him treat my mom like somebody with health insurance. I had never seen somebody be treated without health insurance. I had never seen, he was dying, and nobody gave a shit. And they were worried about him selling his pills. <laughs> you know, I mean, just crazy stuff. You know, we were in there watching Forrest Gump with, and, and he, he was, had a big Cheeto in his lip, and we, and we were laughing about something, and the, and the nurse came in. I mean, he's dying. My husband's dying, and we're in here laughing, watching Forrest Gump. And here comes this nurse who threatens to throw me out of the hospital if we don't keep it down. You know, that's not what I had seen in my life. I hadn't seen a system throw away people. And, and at some point, I tried to say, you know what? This is wrong. And it wasn't well-received. You know, it wasn't like they were like, oh, yes, Miss Miss Beale, you're right. This is wrong. You know, it was like all of a sudden I didn't have a voice either. Louise has to sit there and make sense of a system that essentially refuses to take care of her husband who is dying before her eyes, but also has to watch the same system go beyond its very best to provide care for her mother. For Louise and for many Americans in the U.S. healthcare system, it's a painful side-by-side -side comparison of how saving human lives in this country is often callously quantified down to a simple question of coverage or no coverage. You know, I, I, I really felt like I'd had like a sheet pulled up. You know, the stuff that I believed for lots of years, maybe the world was fair, all of these things, I knew pretty immediately that the world wasn't what I understood it to be and, and I think it was, I think that time in my life, I learned some pretty powerful, I mean, I had some pretty powerful realizations 
all at the same time I'm struggling with substance use and I'm and I'm and I'm having all these other issues too but I'm seeing incongruence I'm seeing the world is not people don't do what they say they're gonna do things aren't what they seem um, and I'm having trouble sort of figuring out reality I don't think I've ever heard about the system being this callous towards people we're listening to hospitals the sanctuaries where doctors nurses and surgeons are first to care for the people in desperate times of medical crisis, but are discarding people in this case. It reminds me of the old Denzel movie, John Q, where an average citizen is so disgusted by the rudimentary ways to get coverage and help that they take a hospital hostage. And that was made in 2002. We've heard so many stories of how desperate people are getting as pharmaceutical companies, insurance, pre-existing conditions and the like are making the idea of keeping yourself and your loved ones alive a big expensive business. There's a lot of trickle-down effects here, not the least of which being that it means that hospitals, which are increasingly being run with a profit orientation, are making tough, inhumane choices that go against the mission of these institutions. But does it have to be this way? Thelma's work tries to curb what happens to people deemed disposable, but even then, is it enough? Miss Thelma's personality is contagious. She's one that you would sit on the front porch with, with skillet cornbread and sweet tea and have a long conversation in this interview. It felt no different. Miss Thelma started the harm reduction work that Louise now leads after losing a friend to HIV and promising to take action. She is self-taught attending conferences while working a full-time job. She quickly realized the mode of transmission was not what we initially thought, but it was through drug use. However, the government wouldn't fund any research or programs to prove it. So she created an underground market and raised her own money in her own community. Well, I lost a dear friend. I came in uh, when there was a lot of HIV and they were saying it's in black communities. I lost a dear friend of mine. I promised him on his deathbed. Little did I know what I was saying. But I'm going to do everything I can to educate people about the diseases that uh, causes us death, that stigma. Uh, and uh, as I did that, and I started going to conferences like the needle exchange conferences and harm reduction conferences and listening to people from around the world present, I thought that, wow, we're living back in the dark days when it comes to things like addiction and the drugs or sex and that, that sort of thing. It was, it was like riding on the back of a wagon when I was picking cotton in Alabama, <laughs> when everybody else was driving cars, right? So uh, I just, when I promised him that, that was just something that was in me that would not let me stop. In the meantime, I had a full-time job. I worked. As, as a matter, two jobs, one part-time and one full-time job. In between that time, I spent all of my time trying to read and listen to other people, you know, what the uh, substance users go through, uh, especially when they're in that addictive state. Uh, so I had to train myself on that. But when my friend died and I promised him on his deathbed, I would educate everybody I could about HIV. HIV and AIDS, that's what hit, set me on the path 
to go into the harm reduction part because we were focusing on sex, everybody, when uh, um, HIV first come out, you know, you got to be careful who you have sex with. You got to be careful who you have sex with. And it was presented to me as that's the mode of transmission. I never thought that drugs would be a mode of transmission for such a disease, and nobody was talking about it. And like I say, the conferences helped me educate myself about that. So we got together with some people that, um, in the community, two barbers that I can think about. Uh, we met in the living room of our, my home and we developed the right focus group, which meant that we're gonna focus on the right thing to help our communities not to suffer the suffers that we see on in the media. So we were focused at first on HIV and AIDS. So after that, we got a new board. They didn't want to talk about substance use. And so Louise went from being self-taught to actually organizing the community members from her neighbors, church members, and everyone in between and saying that we are miseducated and misled on what the disease is and how it's being transmitted. The discovery of this brought me back to a painful childhood memory of when my uncle died of AIDS. And when he came to live with us, it shook my world in terms of what the disease does to people. In the early 90s, to live with someone with AIDS was literally to live with death. How was Louise, though, able to bring people along and combat misinformation? And what was her learning curve in embracing something that was so stigmatized, especially in our culture? Well, <clears throat> I think it comes from my uh, spiritual self more than my physical self. I think that once I uh, promised my friend on his deathbed, I believe that that is what caused me to forget everything else and just go to work, do my job so that I can have my own monies so that I don't have to go and ask the state for monies to do what they should be doing, especially in my community. So we, what, what we did is um, there was two guys, like I said, was uh, barbers and of course, you know, a lot of stuff talked talked about in the barbershop. So we just got together and we just decided that we was gonna do what we could do. And going to the conferences, I met my dad, white boy, it was his name, uh, Dave Purchase. <laughs> Dave Purchase. <laughs> I mean, I can't call him, I can't call him Dave, I call him dad because he taught me everything I knew about trying to curb this disease. I remember one time I was telling him that I was stuck and I didn't know where to go. And he just say, hell, Thelma, here, here, you some syringes. I don't mean so. You good, you good. <laughs> I don't mean, <laughs> here, you give me, take these syringes and let's go out and do it. And that's what I did. I, you know, he sent me supplies over from Seattle, was he in Seattle? Tacoma. Tacoma, Tacoma. Oh, mm -hmm. And he sent me uh, supplies out and didn't charge me anything for them at first. And then I <laughs> started to uh, meeting people at the conferences that was uh, the financial people at different uh, organizations, uh, foundations. And they came down and visit. Uh, one lady is from Greensboro and she was interested in what I was doing here. So she kind of trained me on the financial part, you know. 
these are the things that you got to have in place and all of that. And yeah, that's about, about 2001. That's, that's about right. Because I worked at least three or four years working in the office and in the community and then going home, taking a nap and going to work on my paid job. So I wasn't getting any money outside. So I was just doing what we could do. Yeah, you were using what is your living wage to actually uh, be the starting seed money for the business. Yes, because I didn't want no, I didn't want my hands to be tied. Because if you're going to do something about people that the majority see as least of these, you're nobodies, you were there because you choose to be there, you're not going to get any funding from them. You got to do what they want you to do. And I don't think too many people <laughs> really wanted to get better, especially when you look like me. That's just my thought. That is I a... noticed that the, the, the organization that was run, like the one that when my friend, when he found out he had HIV and AIDS, he went into this community and in, into this organization. And because I wanted to learn more, I went and volunteered and then they, they hired me. And I, that's how I learned about the disease and, and talking to people after trainings and conferences. That's how I got my real knowledge of what's, what was really happening with people. And because the money was going only to those few people, I was a nobody, so I couldn't get money from that. So that's how I ended up going to conferences and getting the money. So I just knew that we're all individuals and the same sunshine on me shine on her, same rainfall. So we gotta be the same. We gotta be the same. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we ain't no difference in us. So that was my saving grace. And um, that's how I got started. And I was in public housing. And you know, you can't have syringes and things in the public housing. They gave me an office. And then when I started speaking out, I went to um, work one day. They done took up computers and everything and threw them out the window and broke up a lot of stuff. In your office? It was, yeah, my office. <laughs> it, was, it was one given to us by the uh, housing, housing authority. Housing authority. Yeah. And I knew, you know, th there's regulations. I'll, that's the first thing I look at. That's how I keep from going to jail. I, I think <laughs> I can't go to jail. <laughs> I can't do that. I do it for us. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I always try to... Uh, look at the whole picture and I studied and, and when I went to college that was one of my uh, uh, studies I mastered in, in non-profit management was my minor and criminal justice was my major. So I needed to learn everything I could about health, the law, and how people function in order to be able to have a good syringe exchange. We have to look at all of those facets. And then you got to look at the communities that you're serving. Church people, one of the worst people I've seen. You pray, you, we go to church and we talk about, this is from my perspective, okay? We talk about how we want to help everybody. We just love everybody. That's you the know, message. That's the way God wants us to be. But when you start talking about certain things, oh, we don't need to be with them. That's what I, that was really my driving force. Because people, once they hit that addictive state, they need somebody to understand. You can't just say, well, God didn't want them to be like that. Well, guess what? They like that and he's controlling things, so you say. So that was my push. Thelma is essentially a grassroots activist here 
leveraging her passion, her skills, her values, and her promise to create a movement of structure and support to start capturing a lot of people that have been discarded by the system. You have to remember healthcare, it sits at this intersection of policy, culture, practice, and discrimination. And for all of these points, someone's getting squeezed out of the picture of support and care. For Thelma, who saw her friend die, like many did during the height of the HIV AIDS epidemic, as a literal casualty of these policies and resistance to people's dignity and humanity. In the South in particular, the AIDS and HIV crisis has struck and continued to strike the black male population especially hard and at the rate at which they continue to die is a virtually ignored epidemic. And so she's done what so many black women in my life have done. She's not waiting on the government. She's embarked on one of those earnest one-person missions to not only provide support and guidance, but to basically help restore the humanity as much as she can to the people that come to her doorstep. It's easy to evangelize someone like Thelma, and that's okay. But we also shouldn't do that at the expense of decrying what's happening and holding accountable our failing healthcare system. And Louise, tell me a little bit about what's your role here? Well, um, this is this is our community. This is this is Urban Survivors Union, and this is um, something that it's hard for me to even spell my role. I mean, I, I think on paper I'm a director, but I think that's not what I aim to be. I aim to be a part of something special that's community-led and that doesn't require a director. We really want to move away from hierarchies that aren't useful. Um, and everybody that wants to have something here can grow something here. As long as it's not pro-drug war or like against our principles, if you have an idea, then we're, we're down to, to help you grow it and help you make it come alive. So this is really a, a, a place um, where people that have substance use experiences, people that have been oppressed, people that have struggled um, can find some, can be treated with dignity, respect, and love, and maybe not have to jump through all the ho hoops that they would have to somewhere else. Um, oh my, you can just turn that off. Sorry. No, you're good. Um, sorry, I don't even know if that's my phone. Um, but but uh, nobody, uh, when, when I met the two founders of the Urban Survivors Union, they basically said, we have a 501c3, if you want to build something in North Carolina, make it happen. And, and we worked together, and, and I was dedicated to making something happen here because we'd been working in North Carolina for a long time. And so that's what it is to me. It's a place where we can turn this thing that's been devastating into something positive. And the thing that you're naming is drug and substance abuse? I don't know that I would name it even as drugs, but I would certainly say that it is related to drugs in that my experiences with drugs and the drug war and drug policy. I don't think we can separate the harms of drugs from drug policy until, until we do, right? It's hard to know what's a drug problem versus a drug policy problem when drug policy problems are so intensely 
uh, damaging. Yeah. I think what's good about the National Coalition of Harm Reduction is that to start a chapter, there's a prerequisite that members be involved in some way. It's a for us, by us model in that you can't just come in and try to serve people with hierarchy. You have to be able to say, I know what it is. I felt this before and I can help in a real authentic way. It's positioning those directly impacted as the experts in their own healing instead of someone who doesn't look like you trying to tell you how to get your life together. When thinking about the war on drugs and how it came about, I wanted to know Thelma and Louise's thoughts on the intent behind drug policy of the Reagan and even the Nixon eras. Hmm. Well, I had no clue until I started going to harm reduction conferences, until I started being invited to sit on um, boards where uh, the um, where they give you money. They <laughs> 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 uh, review boards review of, boards. of of um, funders for, for the funders. Uh, I met a young lady, and I have to say her name, and if I can remember, it. You know but I she's here know. from she's from Greensboro, over her home was near A and T. She works for a foundation in uh, Washington D.C., and she met me at a conference where we met each other at a conference. We kind of had a talk like we're talking, and she became interested because you know this is her home, and we got started talking. So the reason that I wanted to have an agency that is outside of our tax dollars, if you understand what I'm saying, yes. you know, because <laughs> when it comes, those dollars come handcuffs. I knew from being a black person raised in Alabama from the cotton fields and then to Louisville and seeing how the inner city work, that me being who I am and my friend look like me, a lot of other people look like me, and I was actually meeting people basically in High Point that was injecting drugs. As a matter of fact, two of my participants in the program that I had, they were sisters. They both died within a year of each other, and they both had boyfriends that in injected drugs. So that kind of got me thinking more of, let's not worry so much about HIV and AIDS because, you know, that's handled through uh, CDC and all the rest of those boards, they, you know, they want to, they doing that, but, you know, to save a personal life and keep them healthy until they can't overcome or just teach them how to use healthy. None of that was going on. So when I talked to her, uh, Adiza Douglas is her name. She was with uh, Public Welfare. That was one of my first with the right focus group. That was my first real funding to come through. She would come down and we would go out in the community and talk to people that we knew was injecting drugs with our friend uh, Gator. We call him Gator. His name is Stephen Daniels. He was from here. Mm -hmm. And he helped Louise uh, when I backed out. You know, They got together and they did some work together. But he was a real um, injector. He, he came up through that era when, you know, People was laying on sidewalks. I guess they still do that now, but it was like all over the news. After that, uh, we decided, well, what we can do, we can do this underground. And that's how we did it. 
But it wasn't really underground because the sheriff knew what I was doing. <laughs> there were some attorneys that knew what I was doing. And so you took what was the... Because people wanted to criminalize and arrest, and they Very were right. actually... it would. They did arrest the, me. The depiction was, this is mayhem. <laughs> <laughs> when you're criminal, you get arrested when you do yeah, that. Yeah, but see, she had already had her, she had a record. You're right, so if you got a record see, and you Mine was clean. They still the only thing they could find here. in my record is a speed ticket. Now, I'm a speed demon. Well, that's because so, you're going to push your brakes. <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't have, and, and I thank God for that, and I think that that's what sometimes we need to stop. And everybody ain't able to do that. It's to stop and look at the whole picture. But this underground was, you are giving us like, your business model was, first, we're gonna get off the grid and not accept dollars that force us to do uh, or hold an agenda that doesn't really help people. Mm -hmm. And next was actually saying, the thing that had to be radical for this time, we just wanna make syringe exchanges as a way of safe, drug use because people were trying to tell people to stop. Mm -hmm. Traditional addiction treatments present an impossible paradigm where you must lie. It was more than syringes. It was about dignity. We can help you. We will listen to you. Well, and it was even more than that. It was even more than just syringes. And that's what nobody ever got. That it was, it was about a different message. It is. It, it was about it was about it was about dignity, and it was it was the first time people would say something instead of you know what we can't help you until you stop, we can't, <coughs> we can't help you until you're ready to quit. Mm -hmm. That's the only message drug users ever hear. It was we can help you right now. You know we can help you exactly where <coughs> where you are. What do you want? Let me listen to you. Let me hear you for the first time. Instead of me tell you what you need to do, mm -hmm. let me find out what you want to do. Let me find out what it is you actually want and the power of those statements. Because for a drug user, we don't, you know, I can think of years gone by in my life where I, people would tell me what I'm going to do, tell me what I need to do, tell me if I don't do this, you're going to get this, this, and this. And nobody ever asked me what I wanted. I knew what I needed to say to get what... I needed. If I needed to get to rehab, then I could not say, well, I'm going to keep, keep using what I'm doing. <laughs> How little we actually hear what people have to say about drugs. I would say that 99% of people that are working in traditional addiction treatment are getting lied to all day long. And not mm -hmm. because people that use drugs are liars, because they are presenting a, an impossible paradigm where you must lie. Most people... Mm -hmm are not using all day long, every day, and come to a place and say, you know what, I'm gonna stop. <laughs> and I don't ever wanna do this ever again. And they truly, you know, they might feel like that for a moment. Mm -hmm. And but, the addiction centers force them to be able to say that to get help. You have to be well before you can get help. Mm -hmm. You've got, I go and I tell somebody, I cannot stop using. And then I get there and I use while I'm there and I get thrown out. But I told them, I cannot stop using but we throw people out because they cannot stop using. And that is the system in terms of, you better have health insurance before you get sick. But even if you get, even if, and this is the sick part about addiction, even if you have all the money in the world, the system is a racket. The system, mm -hmm. you pay $50,000,
to go to a treatment with a 5% success rate. My daughter just died in a treatment center, in a treatment center. Um, My condolences to you. Yeah. I mean, she died of an overdose in a treatment center because they're not hospitals and they're not providing any answer or any solution. They're telling people to pray. You need to find God. Mm. You need to, you know, and, and in, it, they're using a 12-step model, mm. which is a fine plan for spiritual living. It is not a treatment for a disease, and it's not a treatment for anything. It's so they're doing sort of path. the spiritual work, but no one's actually helping you do well, what it's is not the medical. behavioral yeah, there's no behavior. There's no cognitive well, the behavioral. Work. Uh, well, there's no cognitive behavioral yeah. therapy. There's no DBT. There's no anything. What's galling about Louise's daughter's death is how it highlights the track of substandard support that happens to users. And all of this is the belief that users aren't worth the health, care, or expertise that's inside of the traditional system. And so we know what happens. They get shunted to these other care facilities but there's no real investment, science, or support to help users get their life back on track. In addition, they're costing users a wildly high amount of money that's largely unsustainable to receive care. And all of this for a 5% success rate. I think the churches believe that that's a sin. Oh, you did? Uh, so bad that because I'm going to church every Sunday, I can't help you. I can't be a part of that. We can't be a part of that. I heard that so much in Guilford County when I was trying to get organizations, nonprofit organizations, to kind of work with me through the back door. And they would always say, oh, we get money from the states, we can't do that. Now that's true <laughs> if the state know about it. But you know, you work there. That's not who you are. I hope not. Well, we when you get off, you don't have to tell nobody, I work for the state. If you see a person down and out, you try to help them. They don't have to know your job title. I very seldom told people my job title, and I wasn't even in the state, with the state. So I think where we missed the point, sorry, Louise, but I think we missed the point that drugs has always been around. And guess what? They gonna always be around. Until we understand that all four of us right here, we have different genes. We have different whatever that is in our body. I'm not a, a professional or anything. Whatever that causes us to be addicted. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you got diabetes, but you can't put that uh, far candy down. You can't put that same thing with drugs. But you drugs. don't go to jail for that. Yeah, don't put you in jail for that. You, you old beast. Oh, you'd be in jail. But every time I see you, <laughs> you're eating all these starches and other stuff. Nobody care about that. Because you're just going to go to the doctor. They're going to make their money. And when you die, you're done. What were the specific drug policies that created the predicament that we're in today? Where we have all essentially non-violent um, drug users in prisons for, for long sentences. Well, let me say this real quick first. And then we tend to think about drugs... I need to say that if I hadn't found drugs, I'd have killed myself a hundred times over. So we look at drugs with this sort of, there was something wrong with my situation. There was something wrong with what was going on in my life. There was something wrong with my brain. There was something wrong with the way I could take in the world. And drugs helped me cope with that. So just because they weren't drugs that I got from the doctor, they solved a problem. Now they may not 
created some problems on down the line. So I think we tend to demonize drugs and say, well, drug, you know, and we, and we can't help it because criminalization has done that to us because we only see the, the, the harms of drug policy. We see all of this drug policy stuff and it, and it, and it eats in at that because we all use drugs. We, all, you know, we put people in prison for crystal meth for 20 years, but we eat Adderall all day long and it's the same exact drug, the same exact drug. We give it to four-year-olds. Um, benzos versus, you know, so we could do this all day, methadone, like all, all of this, um, we stigmatize help. So, so I think it's really important that when we think about it, the drug war in general has created all of this. It's created a war against people and it's against really all people. I mean, specifically, you know, with a huge emphasis on, on, on people of color. I mean, because that was by design, and I say this to people all the time, the system's not broken. It's working exactly the way it's supposed to. How did the system work differently for, for black people? How does it work differently? Yeah. Well, I don't know how much, I mean, well, one in three black men can expect to go to, you know, have, mm. I mean, we, we've got one in three black men looking at prison in a mm. lifetime and, and all of the, all of the way we, I mean, you have to work hard to get the kind of statistics we've got with, with drug policy and with drugs. I mean, statistics in America don't just equal out that way. I mean, they have policed heavily, you know, mm -hmm. black neighborhoods. I mean, do we know that mm -hmm. black people don't use more drugs than white people? We know all of these mm -hmm. things. And, and yet we somehow tolerate this kind of, this kind of like uneven money, economics, all of these things. What happens when I go to, I should be, if I was a black man, my God, I think I'd be in prison. I mean, there's no, I mean, I have a master's degree and I'm not just super smart. You, you see what I'm saying? Like I'm a white woman that was born of parents Privilege. that were uh, privileged. They were professors. Mm -hmm. Education was important. The only hustle I knew was getting student loans. The only way to keep getting money was to keep getting good grades. You see what I'm saying? So these are the, I mean, when we're supported, if I'd have, if I, if people wouldn't have thought that was important, if, you know, all of the things that have been in my life have led up to me being somebody that's had struggles with addiction and all of this, but yet still has a master's degree, but yet still has, you see what I'm saying? Without those things, I think what we are exposed to is so important and what, the, the kind of support my mom could get me out of jail, my mom could pay for the attorney, and, and would have spent her last to do it. That was the intention, I think. But, but people, yeah, go ahead. Um, drugs and in the lower income communities, which is at one time was predominantly black, we didn't go out and bring the drugs into our community by no means. No. So we had to get the drugs from someplace. So that some place was by another group of people. Probably they didn't look like me more. 99% of them didn't look like me. So you find these people in the community and when you are living, I came from a sharecropper family. We couldn't go to school as long as there was cotton in the field to pick. So everybody else is sitting in classrooms. Although it was all people that looked like me, they were learning. I, my brain was, you know, our brain wasn't being uh, 
massaged, for lack of a better word. You know, get out there and get that cotton out of that field. So that white man, that Mr. Charlie, won't be mad at me and putting me out of this house. That when, when it rained, we got to put buckets all over the place to keep the you know, floor from flooding. You know, that's the living conditions that we, most of us, was brought up in. On the flip side of that, you got these people who was kind of educated. That's my mama's side. You know, you have some... Uh, um, teachers in the family, you got some nurses in the family. That elevates you, but you're still doing the same thing. So as the drug wars, uh, war on drugs come about, what I've seen in the community is kids as young as seven or eight being drawn into, maybe they were telling them not to use, but they was definitely running the drugs. So you can make more money than your parents can make on a 40-hour shift per week, they can make that much in a half a day. And that's what everybody looked for, is that money coming in. And I guess, hence, money's the root of all evil. I don't know. That's what my daddy taught me. These people over here, if you walk down the street over here, you're going to get arrested. And guess what? If you, and nowadays, I believe if you're a black male, and you ain't got no drugs on you. When they pick you up, by the time they get you downtown, you're going to have drugs. What do you think? I, I've seen it. <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen all kinds of stuff. It's just the way. I mean, but, you know, I've also seen what happens to people that use drugs. Mm -hmm. So I've seen, you know, I think once, you know, I've, I've seen it happen to people, you know. The police are, 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 have, are the most dangerous gang in America. There's no doubt of that. I think that. I mean, they are out of control. But there's also another set of actors in all of this that we really haven't discussed. The police. Like other authority figures such as doctors, nurses, and medics, the police play a role that also helps determine the type of care, empathy, and advocacy the people caught in the drug trade experience. The police are able to do any, I mean, really, if they want to sexually assault somebody, they sexually assault somebody. If they want some drugs, they take some drugs. If they, if you talk to, you know, if you talk in a way they don't like, they, they are, it is their sort of world to come through and do what they, what, what they will. I mean, it is, it's, I, I really believe in, especially vice narcotics, I think what happens with vice, I think that is a specific group of police that are, dangerous in, in, a, in a more profound way, at, at least to people, you know, vice narcotics, at least to people that are involved in, in, in uh, substance use. Mm -hmm. um, they're allowed to lie. They're allowed to pretend. Um, they are constantly trying to destabilize communities by having people tell on people. Um, this whole sort of, hey, honey. Um, it's just a, it's just a, it's an awful scene. It's an awful sort of, and I think they're sort of the, the lords of it. I think they see themselves as sort of the overseers. Um, and I think anybody with a criminal record is, is sort of theirs to puppet. I think there's just sort of the puppet master of, of, and, and I think if you don't know it, you can't see it. But we must wonder, do the officers work in the same way in black communities in their response to opioids like they do in white communities? Because what we've seen thus far is that if they overdose, an ambulance is sent, a shot is given at an attempt to save their lives. 
That wasn't the case in our community. I think there's a push to change policy. So, of course, yes, we are, we are coming to a place where there's a push to change policy because white people are dying. Absolutely. Mm. White people are dying. We <laughs> must take it. And now little Johnny and Susie are going to go to jail. People are seeing. So white we, death is actually moving drug white policy. De- white death is moving drug policy. Move Let's yeah. move it. You know what I mean? Let's, you know, is it right? Is it? Fuck no. But I do know that that doesn't change the fact that once you are, I don't know, I, 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 I think there's still privilege. I'm still treated like a white woman, but I tell you what, once you're a felon and once you're sort of within this system, it's not the same as uh, nobody's taking pictures with anybody. You know, I'm terrified. If, if, somebody be, if, if police are at my door, I do not answer. The point Louise is raising is that the first thing we have to recognize is that all who are impacted deserve care. And as a citizen in a country and having human regard, there's a way that we all should show up for people. But what we're realizing is that the government is choosing to respond with a racial disparity. That disparity being the war on drugs and the crack epidemic, where it was used as a tool to move black and brown folks into prisons for selling and using. But today, as it affects more white communities, the president has declared a national health crisis. But we're still doing it. And so this is what's important to see is that, yes, we are talking some health policy. But at the very same time that we have naloxone access and we have these, we are (coughs) drug-induced homicide laws where the police can arbitrarily, for whoever they want, decide to charge you with murder. So if we, we use right now and I die... Thelma can be charged with murder just because they want to do it. You know, if they if they choose to charge that person. Now, that undoes every bit of naloxone access. That does it undoes every bit of Good Samaritan. And tell us Those what. are laws from, from back from when, you know, that's back <coughs> old legislation from what they used back in, in the we, crime in, bill. In, in, in the crime bill. And so we have sort of a, a, a we have Jeff Sessions, who is from this, you know, from where me and Thelma are from. So we are drug war back on. So we've got, it's kind of a fucked up time, really, to be quite honest, because we've got public health saying this is, a, this is not a crime. This is a, a disorder, a disease. This is something people cannot help. This is like Alzheimer's. Like if I was to describe addiction, then I would describe it. Then I would describe it. Then I would describe it like... Um, like Alzheimer's or like if somebody, like I think we should talk about it that way. That's the, you know, when you're saying somebody's sort of not acting disease. like their self, yeah. they're not acting it's like their self, you know, that you come home one day and they're screaming and yelling and acting, not acting, <coughs> but, 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 hard, but throwing people out and putting people on the street and doing all of these things is not what we ought to do for people. So we've got public health and we've got uh, uh, psychology and all of these groups saying this is an illness, this is disease, this is not... Crime is not morality. And then we've got Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions and all these crazy people (laughs) saying, we're going to do all this stuff that we've already done before. It doesn't work. We're going to keep filling up the prisons. We don't care um, because we make money, private prisons. We have, you know, this is, and we're going to continue. And who are we going to fill them up with? Well, we're going to fill them up with, 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 certainly with, with black people. Thelma and Louise are on the front lines of seeing how the national story about the drug crisis has shifted in terms of policy and perception as it applies to race. 
We've seen how there's been a difference in criminality, empathy, incarceration, and treatment when it comes to the difference in crack versus opioids. There's a split and it's impossible to ignore the way we've handled the drug crisis that hampered predominantly black and brown communities in the 80s and 90s versus the way we're dealing with predominantly white and rural communities now has been wildly different and is yet another extension of not only anti-blackness, but the way we weaponize anti-blackness through policies and policing and ultimately the denial of resources to lots of citizens. And so Thelma and Louise remind us of what happens when the ground shifts beneath us again and again. And as we continue our conversation, we hear them talking about the ways that they've sought to push back against these policy by working with the very people that are getting harmed the most by them. Now I'm wondering, what's the new play here? What are they learning? And can it make a difference at this point? When you think about the work you all do here, um, I think it starts when I was coming in and I was asking, I was like, what does this say on the board? This is, tell the people what the board says. You can never be clean because you were never dirty to begin with. Which is like that moment that you have the epiphany and the aha. That how you see a person <coughs> is the policy you create, is the treatment plan you give to them, is where you think they belong and deserve in society. That's right. um, and so a lot of what you're doing here is sort of restoring um, what drugs can actually compensate for for an individual that's sometimes intangible for uh, a non-drug user like me to go in and, you know, and say like, hey, you, you shouldn't be doing that. But when you are actually trying to reach a baseline of self-acceptance or, or being a functional human being and the drugs are providing that for you, um, that, is, that is your ability to cope. How do, you, how do you create your programs here? Because you do a lot of work across a lot of things, which is sentence reform, which is going in and being a community advocate. <coughs> tell me about your programs. What are, tell this me about the easy. programs you, you run here. This is easy. It's all done sort of the same way. We go to the people. We ask them what they want. We talk to, we talk to the folks in the community. We listen. We, you know. Who do you listen to? We listen to the people that are impacted. We listen to the people most affected by the problems. We know that people are are the experts of their own lives. I know what I need. You know, I know where I hurt. I know what I need. I know what I I I just I know what I need to talk about. You know, we need to listen to people. We need to listen to what they want. What is it that you want? Maybe it's not tangible, but at least give me a chance. You know, let me try. Let me let me set my own goals. Don't just tell me Two drug users can't be in a relationship. Two sickos don't make a wellow. I mean, that is really what we say to people that are in relationships and use drugs. Instead of trying to help them be in relationships, we just say, oh, you need to not be together. That, that won't work. What specifically, though, was the message? Because when you went back out and you were telling people, hey, come work with me, you were using what you had heard in the harm reduction conferences, what you had sort of sat with in your personal time, how did you turn listening into new messages? What I went to 
go to communities, I don't talk about drugs at first. I allow people to talk to me. My job ain't to go out and talk to them. She's the only one that gets it. I swear people have such a hard time getting just that. If more people, if more people could just resonate on that. Our job, I don't know anything extra special. Mm -mm. I don't you have know. the answers. I really don't. I'm, I'm messed up myself. We don't you have the answers. You know, when I met this girl, she had both the legs. She's a beautiful young lady. Oh, oh what you trying to say? I'm not beautiful now. No, you ain't beautiful. You're ugly. And then, no, you know, I'm I cry say, for a week. go to conferences, and, you know, you start out going to conferences, and you see this person, and you don't even know they're injected until you happen to be in a training with them, and they share that with you. And then after a couple of years, you know, you look at them, and you were thinking, what happened? You know, because it changed. You know, when you use drugs, you know, you can't be the same person as you, when you wasn't, even smoking marijuana. I can tell you this is good when my son been on a smoking bench. <laughs> you know, we lose those things. So my thought was to go in the community and let people know that there's somebody here to listen to you. Because everybody don't want to listen to you. They want to talk to you. You need, don't need to do that drugs. So you opened yourself up to listening. Yeah. And when, what did they begin to divulge to you? What were, what were the things that they are carrying around that they felt comfortable enough to share with you? Well, the first thing is a lot of the women has been abused. And that was a way to overcome the pain and the shame. Second of all, is that there was a man in their life, and that's why I always tell my daughters and anybody else's daughter, listen, you don't need a man in your life. You need to want a man in your life. So when you brought up with that you got to have it or you're going to be called gay, that's the first, the worst thing for a black person to be called. We don't like none of that stuff. You know that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but believe me, I know. That's <laughs> why I said that. So we have to teach people that's what I tried to do. Take the harm reduction message. And what I learned out in the streets, just talking to people and sometimes embarrassing myself, sometimes having to get out of the way for somebody to kill me. Putting all that together and let people know that we are all free agents here in the United States of America. A big part of harm reduction is the notion that Thelma and Louise see the importance of meeting people struggling with addiction where they are instead of coming to them with presumptions about what they need and where they should be. And you can hear they're both able to not see this as criminal acts, but ones rooted in coping with pain, failures, disappointments. They're able to understand that people are complicated and don't always have the means to escape situations that they find themselves in. These two women are choosing to see the assets in people's lives and in their stories, even at their most vulnerable points in life. Stephen would go out and pick up, you know, drug dealers or users, users more than like. He would only bring men. And I noticed they would get in conversations about the women. You know, at this time of year, this girl had that. And this, uh, this time of year, uh, month, this girl had that. So I said, Stephen, can you bring some women in here? And what I noticed from that is, as long as it was just men around the table, we could talk. But when that woman come in, 
everybody was quiet. And she, because she, that one that I remember, she sat at the end of the table and she didn't say two words other than introducing herself and then get up and leave. And I'm sure it was because that I men, men, period, because ain't no different in want to be macho even if they are drugged out. Well, can I can I put this in there? Yeah, I do. That we live, we, when you use drugs, you, you live in an underground economy. So you no longer have the police. Mm -hmm. You no longer have, mm -hmm. I mean, it really is who's the biggest, who's the strongest. You're not calling the police if you're getting beat up on. You ain't calling anybody. So it really does, um, it changes, uh, I think, it, Men become more dominant in uh, in drug using culture because of because of this. So a lot of times, you know, and if you were abused as a child, you probably you know you're more likely to be abused. And and I think that I think dynamics in in these ways really do. It's why in drug user organizing we've worked really hard to empower women. Women, if they have children, they can't admit to being a drug user. You're gonna lose your kids. That's right. You know, especially if you're targeted by the drug war. I mean, mm -hmm. you don't want. I mean, we have to be real careful about. You know, we want to we want to take supplies to women. I mean, we always have more men coming in here than women. Women have to get through their man to get in here, and then they got to make sure they're they're taking care of their families and uh, not putting their families at risk. So there's a lot of dynamics in in these places that are really difficult. Inside of their advocacy is the acknowledgement of gender issues. They're willing to see a fuller picture of all of it that this isn't just about the derailment that happens with the life that's being consumed with addiction, but also what happens when social politics are introduced to this, race and gender being the key things that they're willing to surface. But in particular, we hear them talking about the need to uplift and empower women, knowing that women are uniquely walking a hard road around these situations. They're not getting the same visibility and support they're dealing with deeper genderized and emotional issues and the empathy and advocacy isn't there in the same way. We've got overdose prevention. We've got a program right now called uh, More, Than, uh, More Than Tested Empowered. It's all about health and it's all about drug users do care about our health and that we're just not given a chance to care about our health. We're not listened to. Doctors turn us away. We're not even allowed to have the medication for hep C unless we are not using. Um, we're thrown out of uh, drug treatment centers for using. I mean, it's, it's crazy. So that's one of the th pieces. It's a, it's a piece where we get to um, talk about that we do care. We're making a video and doing some participatory video making and using mm -hmm. a human rights model. Um, I write grants. Uh, we had a, a photo voice project. I write little project grants so that we can pay community members to be part of and participate. Um, and whatever that looks like. So sometimes it's a photo voice project. Sometimes it's, uh, right now we're doing a, a will signing where we're all gonna sign a living will um, or an advanced directive that says, if I die of a drug overdose, I do not want you to arrest anyone. I don't want you to arrest my drug dealer. I don't want you to arrest my friends. Tell me about the overdose prevention program. So that's naloxone. So that's what you were talking about. The shot, we have uh, nasal uh, spray, we've got a shot. A lot of it is talking to people about what to do. And it's really about talking to people about how to plan unplanned behavior. Using drugs is usually an unplanned behavior. And we're talking to people about planning that behavior. We talk to people about medication-assisted treatment. Treatment has a 5% success 
right, abstinence-based treatment. Methadone and Suboxone have much higher rates of success, but yet we've stigmatized those treatments. And in fact, in today's society, when our drug supply has been poisoned with fentanyl, methadone is a huge, huge protective factor against overdose. We should be putting people on methadone, uh, especially people that have struggled with opiates for a long time. This should not be something that we tell people is a bad thing. I lied to my mother about being on methadone for three years. I was lying about going to treatment. I was lying about a treatment that allowed me to go through graduate school. I was lying about a treatment that allowed me to show up for my kids. Why are we, why are we damning the treatment? We don't say, y you cheated when you, uh, <laughs> you cheated, you didn't really get better from your depression. You took Celexa. We don't say that, but we say that. So methadone is a way of actually drawing people sort of off the drugs, the harder drugs to sort of like a, a safer drug? It, well, it, it is a drug. But it is a, it, 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 it works on your receptors. And so what happens is when you use drugs, you stop making dopamine. And when you stop making dopamine, you stop feeling pleasure. And if you stop mm. feeling pleasure, that's no so good. Mm. Uh, so this allows you, I mean, I take methadone, you would not know it. Methadone is not a drug where it's visible or you see it, you can live a very, I mean, my deal is, who cares about what drugs I'm on? I'm over this whole, like, you want to know what drugs I'm on? How about you judge me by my behavior? I want to be judged by the, by the content of my character, not the content of my pee. I think that this, this sort of, this over-infatuation with looking in my pee and finding out what's in there, if you can't tell that I'm on drugs, what are we talking about? I mean, we have all of these issues with what people put in their bodies. Why are we not more concerned about their actions? We, we essentially have a, a drug culture in the United States. Mm -hmm. It's well, just I which mean, market you get it from. There has never been a society mm -hmm. without drugs. There's never been any, any culture. Mm -hmm. So the overdose prevention is helping them to have those life-saving um, apparatuses right then to yes. be able to, to, to save their lives. Skills. And you, those skills um, for themselves or for someone else yeah, um, the Surgeon General's actually said that everybody in America should have naloxone, and mm -hmm. I agree. Are you serious? Yeah. yeah. Um, the other thing you started off doing early on, Ms. Thelma, was the syringe exchange. What was, what was that? Um, what's the purpose of the syringe exchange? I, it, it, it can be implied. Um, well, syringe exchange to me is... I'm going to provide you with as many sterile syringes as you would like to keep from sharing with someone else. Even with the heroin, I, I didn't know anything about drugs, shooting drugs, until I got involved. I didn't know anything about it. So I had, like, my, my friend that, that taught me, he showed me, you know, how they cook it up and how they pull it up and how it's shot and how you nod out. He taught me everything I needed to know, along with my dad. Once I learned that, I realized that our health industry was only talking about those goody two-shoes, what I call it, type of injections or drug use. So if I have a friend that I met wherever I met them. 
I don't know who used drugs. I don't use drugs, but I like it. Mm -hmm. So that's what I was finding in the community. Women was being with men who inject drugs. Naturally, they want her to inject with him or vice versa. So my thing was to zero in on what is the underlying factor that causes a person to use drugs to where they go out. Uh, don't know what's in the drug. Uh, so when I went in the community, the first thing I did was try to find someone who either knew people that was injecting drugs or whether they was injectors themselves. That was before I met Louise. She was God sent to me. Disappointed me, but I... Let me explain something to you why I say that. I got disappointed not because of her. I got disappointed because I wasn't where I needed to be doing what I was doing. You know, because I thought that you talk to people about their addiction, you give them clean, sterile uh, uh, equipment, they're going to be fine. What did you learn that you needed to be more equipped to, to provide? I, I needed to know about all of the additive that was in these drugs that's coming into s different sections of town. Mm. Mostly those are So there's different strands of the drug that are actually out there in, in the community. There are drugs that is intentionally, I believe, I guess all the anytime they uh, uh, do the additive to the drugs, it's intentionally, right? Yeah. So if you are in a poor section of town where you only buying just the minute part, it's going to be, what do you call it, cut? Is it cut? Is it cut? Well, I mean, all drugs are, are, are contaminated now. I mean, anybody that uses heroin is using is using a poison drug supply, and and that's that right? and that's the fight for legalization is or decriminalization. If nothing else, we, I mean, people are dying because fentanyl is deadly. So this is essentially what the gentleman just came in here for was mm -hmm. he came in to get um, what did he come in to get? So he he got a a, a kit which is uh, t two bags of syringes and uh, cotton cookers, everything you need to inject drugs, and we gave him Safe. some naloxone. And what is the name of the drug? Like naloxone, which is an overdose reversal drug. Yeah, naloxone. Right. And so he's been in here before. We know who he is. You know, a lot of times people want to get in and out real quick. We can, you know, one of the benefits of being here all the time is I know, I know the folks. Mm -hmm. If somebody looks like they're having a rough time, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it if they want down. to. You know, or I could just say, hey, well, you know, we are, we'll joke. I mean, we laugh. We, mm -hmm. But there's a way you can, there's a way you can, hey, is everything all right? You know? A little tired, take a nap. You know, or, or if I haven't seen him in a while, then maybe he's been in jail. These are, these are markers for overdose. If somebody's been in jail, if somebody's mm -hmm. been in treatment, if somebody hasn't been using for a while, if they relapse, they're likely to die these days with fentanyl. I mean, that's how strong fentanyl is. And so we try to take notice if somebody, you know, of what's going on with people. You know, that's what we talk about all the time is how can we, how can we in three, four minutes, what kind of message can I give you in four minutes? And there's a lot of messages. Our resistance to what works for people that are ailing is literally killing them. We can have such a 
culture of ignorance and disregard to what is a combination of science and sociology that we're willing to overstep the rational approaches that we've just learned. The idea of treating, not punishing, but treating how people are suffering and living on the edges of society due to drugs and despair seems foreign to our conversations about how we tackle this crisis. At the heart of it again is our belief in people's humanity when they don't do good things. It becomes a reason to unjustly remove their ability to get the treatments and support they still deserve. And without direct impact on most of our lives, it's easy not to understand the consequences of what our inactivity means people suffer on the vine of indignity. And there's also the consequences of nimbyism, also known as not in my backyard in this too, that's actually quite active and familiar. The times that communities advocates for clinics and clean needle exchanges not to be located near their homes or to vote down on the resources going to the drug inflicted. There's an ability to believe that people deserve support, but also be resistant to allowing those people to get that support. And like I said, if, oh, I, hadn't found, if I hadn't found drugs, I would have killed myself. I, I was, something wasn't right. And my whole life something hadn't been right. And drugs have been, depending on what's going on in my life. But All right. that, that is how, you know, sometimes I can use drugs and it doesn't destroy my life. Sometimes I can't. It depends on what's happening with me. Sometimes I can drink and I, I'm fine. But if I'm drinking at something, I'm not fine. So I think it has more to do with me than the drugs and what's going on in my life. And I think it really is the social determinants of health. I believe that addiction is the opposite of connection. I believe when we're connected, addiction doesn't destroy us when we're disconnected. Hmm. And, and, and all we do to people that struggle with addiction is disconnect them. We disconnect them from their families. We disconnect them from their friends. We disconnect them from society. We disconnect them from their jobs. And when we're done disconnecting, what does someone have? They have nothing. And what harm reduction is about is reconnecting. You come in here as a passive recipient of service and you become a provider of service. So everybody that comes in here, everybody that, that works here, everybody that takes part, we have volunteers in here all the time. We try to pay, I do, because how can you tell somebody they're worth it and not put money in their hand? Right. You know, but we don't always have, you know, we make paying people a priority. Whatever I pay myself, I pay out to the community. So if I pay myself $15,000, $15,000 goes out. You know, so when I hear uh, somebody say, oh, we just don't have it in our budget, we'll put it in your budget. You yeah. know what I mean? You make it a priority and then it is in your budget. And then it happens. There's so much loss in Thelma and Louise's lives. They've dealt with the deaths of friends, family, and the people they've directly treated. It made me wonder, how do they continue to deal with death? Oh, all I do is work. I mean, I'm still, I don't think I've dealt with it. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, the, the, there's so much loss. I've lost friends, I've lost lovers, I've lost, I mean, there's so much loss and there's so much pain. I'm only alive because of the work. You know, the work is what sustains sustains me and the work is what gives me a reason to, to you know before it was I had you know Selena who was that's my daughter right there you can go up you she's she's in that picture um I mean she was so much she was so important to me and she was so much she was so much a part of my life and uh 
But this work has always sustained me. This work allows me to give back. This work allows me, this, this work gives me something to say where people want to hear it. This work takes me from being this piece of shit to this person that has something to give. This work allows me to turn it around. And I think that's what this is all about. It really is all about making something out of, making something out of whatever mess there is. Whatever, whatever's happened, whatever pain, whatever trauma, whatever, there is another side. There is another side and it's not that deep. You know, we get caught up. We get caught up in believing that all these things are so important. And I do know what the important things are in life. They're relationships, they're people. They're the people we have investments in. I mean, getting to watch somebody whose life is broken and they're in chaotic use, and then they can come in here and do a little work and get involved and find something they like, and they're not... There's a difference between being using drugs, even abusing drugs, misusing drugs, and being entrenched in a drug-using community. That's two different... What's the difference? There was a time I was entrenched in drug use and, and drug-using culture and how you get drugs and stealing and getting money. To, and then you, you come in somewhere like this and you're having conversations. I'm talking to you. You're telling me about your, you know, what you're doing. I'm talking to Thelma. I'm talking to you. I'm not talking about drugs all day long. I'm not involved in all of this stuff where I'm just hearing neck. When you are around something all day long, you begin to normalize it. By being somewhere like this, I'm around the rest of the world. So I'm not just around people taking and surviving and in a survival sort of, even when people, I mean, people take and people, you know, this is a hard job and that people are always taking, but I know they're not taking from me. I do know that people are doing the best they can to survive. And so if they do something that affects me, they didn't do it to me. They weren't really thinking about me. I probably wasn't even in the equation. They were just trying to make it. And if I can do something to, you know, I can't save people. I can't fix anything, but I can show somebody dignity and respect and love. I can be that person. You know, I've walked out of so many service providers' offices in my life and just wanted to fucking kill myself. I just thought, fuck everybody. You know, these people treat me like shit. Everywhere I go, I get treated like shit. There's nothing. I don't ever want somebody to walk out that door feeling worse than when they came in. And I don't think they do. People are so grateful for just the little bit we give. People are... Um, People are blown away that we're even here. People are so grateful that we care what they need. People are so grateful they can come and say, I'm injecting drugs, and I can say, okay, we'll make sure you're safe here, and this is, and, and then I'm not like, oh my gosh. They get to be human. Yeah. They get to have dignity. They get to be treated, and, and man, that's, it's powerful. Being a human instead of subhuman <laughs> is nice. And some people never know what it's like to be treated with dignity and respect. That's right. That's I was right. leaving West Virginia not too long ago. They had me come do something with their health department. And man, they treated me so good, so good. They treated me like a woman with a master's degree. Me and my man were leaving and I was like, man, they really are treating me good. I said, that's what it's like to be treated like, a, like you got a master's degree. Yeah. And, I rem and, and I told my man on, my way, on the way home, I said, some people never get to know what that feels like. Drug and drug addiction is still treated like the boogeyman disease. 
These are the types of things that go bump in the community and in our streets, knocking on the edges of our fears all the time. Because of this, we avoid the horrors of what it means to be trapped in this experience. And it means that we work to punish the people to remind us that it could be any of us that fall into the same place. And like a lot of people whose experiences fall into the uncomfortable margins of society, we start enacting social and political actions that make it harder for them to get out of these predicaments and do a lot to remind them they're not worth anything. And yet we don't make meaningful connections about what any of this means to our cities, how it spills into our employment, education, and political system. It colors how we view housing and neighbors and where businesses thrive or die. 